Now we're going to dive into what you're really here for, which is to study God's Word. So let's turn to 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter. And my goal is this. Uh, I think before we break for Christmas, which is only 62 days away, by the way. I know, I knew that would make your evening. Um, I think we have like six or seven more minds before we break and then we start back up in January. My goal is this. I want to try to get through as much of Second Peter as I can and I would like to just to give you guys a taste of the book of Jude. Uh, the book of Jude is my second favorite book in the whole Bible and it's only 25 verses. And uh, it's just got so much in those 25 verses that, you know me, I could spend a whole, like 12 weeks just in those 25 verses. But I just want to touch on it because, again, one of the goals of the mind is just to whet all of our appetites with God's Word so that we can dive into it on our own. Uh, obviously, I can't cover everything, nor do I want to try to cover everything in the books that we study but I just want to cover some of the things that God has laid on my heart so that it can sort of stir you to do your own study and investigation of the Scriptures because that's really where it's at and that's what it's all about anyway. It's uh, feeding ourselves the Word of God. All right? So before we get into Second Peter tonight, let's ask God to help us tonight. Let's open up with the word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much again for just the opportunity you give each and every one of us to be here tonight and to open up your word and to study it together. Uh, Father, we just pray that once again your Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher. Remove me, Lord, and, and help me not to be an obstacle to, to you in any way. Help me not to grieve or quench the Spirit in any way tonight. But just, Lord, may your Spirit just flow freely through, uh, through this place and speak to our hearts and into our minds, Lord, that, that we might just be encouraged and challenged, Lord, with your word tonight. We pray that you would use it again just to stretch us, to grow us, to, to just build us up in your word. And Lord, we'll just praise you already for the great things that we believe are going to come out of our time together tonight. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Again. Last week, and again, I, I'm not going to take a lot of time because each week can stand on its own, but just for those of you that weren't able to be here last week as we started Second Peter, the main theme of Second Peter is growth. Peter is encouraging every believer in Jesus Christ to grow because as we said last week, our Christian life is never static. We cannot stay where we are. We are either moving forward with Christ or we're going backwards in our relationship but we're not remaining the same. And Peter is writing to a group of believers who are living in difficult days, and he is saying to all of them, the best thing you can do for you and for all of those around you is to continue to grow. And so you'll notice, just again as a reminder, in verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow. There's that concept of growth. And then over in... Uh, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, he talks about how we can become partakers of the divine nature. It's a work in progress, but we should be making progress. In verse 5, he talks about adding to our faith all these different things, because faith is the foundation. And then in verse uh, 8, he talks about knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. And so all of these concepts. Notice also in verse 8 at the beginning of the verse, if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, again, the concept of growth, of not remaining where we are, but of continuing to move ahead in my relationship with Christ. So here's sort of what I did last week. I just simply said, what is that next step that God wants you and I to take in making progress in our relationship with Christ? What is that next step that God wants me to take in order to continue to grow in my personal relationship with Him? Because that's what Second Peter is all about. In fact, as we've seen at the very beginning in chapter 1, all the times that Peter talks about growth, we'll flip over real quick to the very last verse of Second Peter. And notice that this is a theme that runs through the entire book because Second Peter 3.18, it ends this way, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from beginning to end, it's all about growth. 
And so again, as we come to a study of 2 Peter, I want you to always keep that theme and that concept at the forefront of your mind. Peter wants these people to grow. He wants them to set goals for growth in their life spiritually. He wants them to be taking steps toward making some, some growth in their relationship with Christ. Because again, we cannot remain static. We are either moving forward in our relationship with Christ or we are moving backward. And there's really no alternative. It's not about ever moving backward. It's about continuing to move forward. So that's where Peter's at here. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Now last week, I pretty much covered the 11 verses of chapter 1. But I reviewed those in, in some ways here in the last couple of minutes. But there were a couple things that I did not touch on last week that I want to come back to this week before we move ahead. One of those, let's begin in verse 2, where Peter says of chapter 1, verse 2 of Second Peter, May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3, I can pray this because His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the One who called us by His own glory and virtue. Here's the point I want to go back to tonight. I want to start with this concept of prayer at the beginning of verse 3. Notice that Paul, or excuse me, I keep wanting to say Paul because I teach so many books of Paul, that uh, Peter is praying for their growth. And, and one of the things that challenges me there is this. A lot of times as Christians, our prayer life predominantly centers around the physical needs of other people. And as I've shared with you here before, I'm not against us praying for physical needs of other people. But the balance of Scripture is this. When you study the prayers of Paul and of Peter, you find that a lot of times they're not just praying for physical needs, they're praying for the spiritual needs of other believers. Predominantly, they're praying for their spiritual growth. So I thought to myself, a challenge for me is, how often do I pray for the spiritual growth of other Christians? And yet that should be something that is a part of my Christian life. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. In verse 2, he's setting down the principle. I want you to grow. And then in verse 3, he says, I can pray for your spiritual growth because... And then I want to touch on that for a moment. Peter can pray for the spiritual growth of these individuals, first of all, because he can talk to God because he has a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship that was granted to him, verse 1, because he has the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches we have access in prayer to God, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness that's been granted to us through Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that has been out of balance in my life as a Christian for many, many years, is this. I'm so thankful, as far as my salvation, for the forgiveness of my sins. And I focus on that aspect of salvation, but I never focus enough on the fact that part of my salvation, besides wiping out all my sin, is also imparting to me a righteousness that is not my own, Jesus Christ's righteousness. Somehow that gets lost in the translation. And yet it is through that imparted righteousness that we have as believers in Jesus Christ that we are able to pray at all and get the ear of God. And so Peter says, I can pray. Another thing of why he can pray is because he knows he is related to a God who answers prayer. Why pray? Why talk to a God if this God does not answer prayer? And so one of the themes throughout the Bible and one of the themes throughout Second Peter is, I can pray. And the reason I can pray and the reason I spend time in prayer is because it's not a futile effort with me because I know my God answers prayer. Now, He may not always answer my prayer the way I want Him to, but God always answers my prayer. He always attends to my prayer. And that's why Peter then can say, I can also pray. Because I'm not only praying to a God who's interested in what I'm praying for, and a God who will answer what I'm praying for, but a God who has the power to do something about 
what I'm praying for. And that's why he goes on in verse 3 to say, I am praying this because I know that His divine power has given you believers everything you need to live a life that's going to please Him, a godly life, as he goes on to say in verse 3. Now the reason I wanted to start there is again, one of the ways that you and I can make progress and grow in our relationship with God is through our prayer life, folks. Through our prayer life. That's one of the things that as we take spiritual inventory, we just need to always focus on is our prayer life. Not only our relationship with the Bible, but our prayer life. And so Peter here is just really at the beginning of this book giving us an encouragement to pray. He says the next time you pray, don't look at it as a futile effort. And don't think that somehow you're praying to a God that is reluctant to to answer your prayer. He will always answer it in our best interest. And He may not always answer it in the way we want or even in the timing that we want it. But when God answers our prayer, it will always, always be for our best. That's why we need faith even to pray. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. In fact, keep your finger there. and Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew for just a moment. The first Gospel, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. If I looked like I was hopping around here a little funny, it's because I got a lifesaver on the bottom of my shoe from up here. (laughs) And I was trying to discreetly get the lifesaver off without looking like I was doing some kind of line dance or something up here. All right. Always got to have some humor around here. I give enough humor. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, Jesus is giving His followers, right at the beginning of their ministry, an encouragement to pray. And here's what He says in Matthew 7, 7. Well, in fact, let me just set the context real quick. The context is this. First of all, in chapter 6 at the end, He talks about how we shouldn't worry about things and leave things in God's hands. And then in chapter 7, He begins to talk about not getting caught up in destructive criticism of other people. And then at the end, though, of chapter, in, in chapter 7, verse 6, he talks about how the, the discernment that we need as Christians, too. So he's talking about all these things. Well, my goodness, you begin to think, okay, I, I shouldn't worry, I should, and I, I shouldn't be destructively critical of other people. I need to have discernment. How do I do all that? Jesus would say, through your prayer life. So notice, verse 7 of chapter 7 of Matthew. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. And in the original language, each of those verbs is in the present. Meaning, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Never get tired of asking, of seeking and knocking to your heavenly Father. It should be a continual thing as a believer to always be asking, seeking, and knocking toward our Heavenly Father. Here's why. Verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. In fact, Jesus said somewhere else, you have not, because you ask not. And the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if his son asked for bread, would he give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? If you then, as human beings who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, here's the key, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Now the key there again is, it's not saying God's going to give us everything we ask for. But it is promising us that God will give us whatever is good for us. And we have to leave what's good for us up to Him because He's all wise. I'm not. And so I leave what good gifts He gives to me and the timing that He does. But the encouraging thing here that Jesus is trying to say is pray. Ask continually. Seek continually. Knock. It's not that God is up there reluctant Like we've got to wear him down in order for him to finally give us something. No, he says, look, you guys are sinful and you like to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father want to give good things to you? He does. He does. And when we begin to doubt that, that's normal. That's 
a normal struggle that we go through, but we've got to come back to Scripture and not allow the devil with his lies or our own self-doubts to cloud what the truth of God's Word is, which is these verses in Matthew chapter 7. So, back to 2 Peter. Peter was praying for their spiritual growth. And he said, I can pray this because I can get through to God. I know I, I serve a God who answers prayer. I know I serve a God who's interested in my prayers. I know I serve a God who, is in, who has the power to do something about what I'm praying for. God wants to enable Christians to grow. And that's why he goes on in chapter 1, verse 3 to say, So God has bestowed on us, and we talked about this last week, everything necessary. You see, as a Christian, I should not look at my life as having any kind of deficiency with which I need something else for God to give me in order for me to grow. God's Word is saying you have all the resources you need. It's just like the illustration we used last week. For those of you that weren't here, and for those of you that were, remember, it's like physically getting fit. It's like, okay, God gave me this gym with all this wonderful equipment in it and all this stuff that, that I can use in order to get myself physically fit. But God supplied it, but I'm still responsible to actually get up and use it. The same thing is true spiritually. God, according to Peter here, has given me everything necessary. He's given me that spiritual gymnasium, if you will, with all these tools and instruments and whatever, the church, the Bible, prayer, fellow Christians, you name it. He's given me all those things in order for me to continue to grow and become spiritually fit. But it's my responsibility to avail myself of those opportunities and resources. And that's why I shared with you guys for many of you in the mind, you're choosing to be in here because this is a step that you want to take in order to try to continue to grow and expand your knowledge of God's Word and, and allow Him to speak to you through His Word. That's great. But I just want you to know, this isn't the stopping point. We just keep on growing. We just keep on going and learning more and more and, and, and allowing God to just stretch us more and more. But the thing I want you to, again to get through the study of 2 Peter is, there is nothing in your life as a Christian that prevents you and I from being what God wants us to be. It's just using what God has already given us. That's why I tease people when, you know, I've heard people say when they pray sometimes to God, you know, maybe they're having a hard time getting along with somebody in their life. There's that difficult person in their life. And so they're like, oh God, please just give me more love for that person. Just give me more love, God. I need more love. And I'll, I'll listen to that and then I'll just go up and I'll just... just yeah. Romans 5.5. 5. Romans 5.5 5 says God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I just say, you know what? You don't need to ask God for more love. You just need to use the love you've already got, you know? And we, you know, sometimes we're praying to God for things that God's saying, uh, I already gave that to you, you just need to use it, you know. It's not a matter of giving it to us, it's a matter of just using what we've already got. Another verse or two that, that I want to show you tonight, just to show you, there, if you know Christ, if you have a personal relationship with Christ, you have everything you need. Because here's the deal, we live in a world today and in a culture which in some ways is a little tolerant of Jesus Christ, but a lot of people would even say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is a pretty good person, whatever. But, but even if you feel like you need Christ, you need Christ, but you also need something else. In other words, it's got to be Jesus Christ plus something else in your life. Jesus Christ is not sufficient, is really what the bottom line is, the message today, in many, many circles. And my Bible teaches me just the opposite, that if I have Jesus Christ... I have everything I need. That's true here in 2 Peter. And I want to show you another verse where that's true. Go back to the book of Colossians for just a second, and we'll jump back to 2 Peter. Colossians. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. And verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, and then the beginning of verse 10. 
By the way, since I had that lifesaver on my bottom of my shoe for a while, I'm sticking up here. So if you see me doing like this, it's because my shoe won't come up. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Notice Paul says, For in him, Christ, in him, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Alright, so in other words, Jesus is God of very God. He's 100% God. There was that debate even in that day. You know, uh, I, I believe Jesus Christ was human, but I don't buy the fact that he was deity, that he was God. Well, Paul would say, no, Jesus Christ is 100% God. All the fullness of God lives in him. In fact, Jesus even said to his disciples when they said, well, show us the Father, Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? Now, notice though verse 10. And you, Christians, all of you in this room who have Jesus Christ, guess what? You have been filled in him. Or you have been made complete in him. In other words, because you and I have Jesus Christ... We have all the fullness of God available to us because Jesus has all the fullness of God in Him and we're in Christ. Therefore, what more do I need? But here's what the devil wants to do. And here's what our flesh wants to do. And here's what the world system wants to do. It wants to come along in our lives as Christians and say, that's nice you've got Jesus in your life. That, I'll, I'll, that's, I mean, even the devil, that's nice. But you need something else. It's just not enough to have just Jesus. Jesus? I mean, yeah, that's good, but it's just not enough. And so we go through our lives, even as Christians, thinking, I got Jesus, but there's got to be something more. And, and the Bible is saying no. That's why Psalm 20, and this is not just a message in the New Testament. Psalm 23, verse 1, I've used this many times. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. What's the next line? I shall not want. In other words, if I'm following my shepherd, then my shepherd is totally satisfying me. I don't need anything else. The problem is we're not finding our satisfaction, even as Christians, in Jesus. And because we don't find our true satisfaction in Jesus, we're trying to look for that fill, you know, thing to fill us up somewhere else. And Jesus would be telling us, you're already full. You don't need anything else. You've got me. And so that's just a message we just need to continue to remind each other of. And that's something that Peter wanted to just remind them of because again, if he's exhorting them and encouraging them to grow, one of the next things people are going to ask is, well, but Peter, I'm under a lot of persecution and, and I need this to grow and I need this to grow and I need this circumstance to change in my life to grow and, and I need this person in my life to grow and I need this person out of my life to grow. And, I, and Peter would say, do you have Jesus Christ? Yeah. you got everything you need. You have everything you need. All right, back to 2 Peter. <sighs> sorry. All right. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry that I said I'm sorry. All right. Now, so verse 4. Through these things, He, Jesus, has bestowed on us His precious and most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised, you and I may be par become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, continue to grow and become more like Christ. But notice that Peter even links this to latching on to the promises of God and not just knowing them in my head, but as we talked about last week in this whole thing about knowledge, it's so important in Peter too, about that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ where it's not a head-to-head -head thing, it's a heart-to-heart -heart thing, and where these promises are not just words on a page, but they truly have become real in my heart. And as I embrace the promises of God, Peter says, I will become more like Him as I embrace them and truly make them my own and truly believe in them. And they're not just in my head as, as verses to quote, but they're in my heart, a foundation to live by. Now, certainly some of you may have some comments or questions about some of the things I've already shared, but I just wanted to stop here for a minute because I think this would be cool tonight 
if we just took a couple of minutes tonight and just a couple of you, if you wouldn't mind, and do it loudly because we've got probably a hundred and some people in here tonight. 104, that's great. Um, is there a promise in the Word of God that truly means something special to you that you would like to share with the group tonight? A promise of God from His Word, a precious and most magnificent promise that in your life has been one of those promises from the Bible that maybe has really maybe gotten you through a difficult time, some promise that you go back to over and over again throughout your life. I'd, I'd like to open it up for you all to share a precious and magnificent promise with us. Yes, Barb. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Great promise, yes. Isaiah 40, 31. Let me just real quick, that there's a great background to that passage because the children of Israel had been in exile and they were headed back to, to, to Jerusalem, to Israel, for the first time in 70 years. And many of them were worried with the same fears and concerns that Barb had. Can we physically make this journey? Do we have the emotional and spiritual strength? And God wrote that through the prophet to his people to say, if I opened up the door for you to go back to your home, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. What an encouraging promise. Great. Thank you. Someone else? Yes. Mm. Lord, your God will be with you wherever you go. That's a great promise. Yes. The inescapable presence of God. Wow. Aren't there times in our life where we're glad God's with us? <laughs> and he's with us even when we don't think he is? All right? Yeah. Sharon. And let me say to tie this into our study of growth and of moving forward in our relationship with Christ, the book of Joshua is a great book to study. And it's all about gaining new territory in my relationship with God. That's really what the book is about. And one of the things that's necessary to gain new territory is to be strong and courageous. Because it's, it's not going to be like that there's not going to be any obstacles there and that it's just going to be really easy, it's going to be sometimes a struggle. Because again, we've got all these forces working against us growing. That's why we've got to be strong in the Lord and that's why we've got to be courageous and continue to hang in there even when things maybe aren't you know, looking good and just continuing to move forward. Great verses. Other promises. Yes. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love that verse. I, I use that a lot. Yeah, Mary Alice. I, I love that. We're heavenly royalty. People don't realize that. We are. We're, that's what the Bible says. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Yes, excellent. Excellent stuff. That's cool. Because he does. Notice, everything isn't good, but God can bring good out of everything. That's how great God is. Yeah, great. Someone else? Yes. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Let me share a promise with you out of Second Peter. Go to Second Peter and look at chapter 3, verse 13. Notice Peter writes in Second Peter 3, 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. I can't wait. I mean, I don't know about you, but to think that we're not going to have to live like this the rest of our eternity. No, God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and that new earth, it's just going to be righteousness. No more sin. No more curse, no more death, no more pain, no more crying, the book of Revelation says. All the former things are going to be passed away. Everything's going to be new, including the new heaven. And God promises us that. And that's why Peter says, hey, I'm waiting for that day. I'm waiting for that day. I'm anticipating that. That's why Peter says, my focus isn't about just things on the earth. I'm, I'm looking ahead. I'm living for eternity. I'm not getting so caught up in the, in the uh, earthly, temporal things that aren't going to last. 
I want to invest my life and my time in things that's going to make an impact in eternity. That's why Moses wrote Psalm 90 and he said, Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Or remind us of our own mortality so that we can live more wisely. Because we're not here forever. And what really counts is how our lives have impacted eternity. And that's why I say... You have the best of both worlds when you join something like the mind. And I'm not just saying just the mind, but something... Because there's only two things that we come in contact with on this earth, on this side of heaven, that are eternal. Only two. People, the souls of men and women, and the Bible. God's eternal Word. So anytime we invest in other people, and anytime we invest in this book, we're investing in eternal things. Any other investment, it's not going to get to the other side. And that's why then Jesus would say, why are you laying up all these treasures for yourself on earth? Why not lay up for yourselves treasures? Why not invest in eternity and in eternal things? So anytime we spend together as people and impact other people, and anytime that we spend in God's word, folks, you're making an eternal investment tonight. And you're sending it on ahead. And it's going to be there when you get there. Second Peter. Let's go back real quick. Because I want to finally get to verse 12 of chapter 1. So Peter here is talking about growth. And the importance of moving forward in our relationship with God. And then notice he says in chapter 1 verse 12. Therefore I intend to remind you constantly of these things. Even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. In other words. He's not writing to a bunch of new believers or baby Christians. Or people who haven't been established. He says listen I'm writing this to a bunch of mature believers. But guess what. I recognize in my own life. And I recognize through the inspiration of God. That all of us, no matter where we are spiritually, we always need to be reminded of things we already know. Because let's face it, as human beings, we can only keep so much in our focus in front of us. And there's so much in the Word of God that sometimes gets neglected and gets passed by because it's not right in, in our focus at that time. And so that's why a good teacher of the Bible, a good preacher of the Bible, a good communicator is just going to be like Peter. We're going to be reminding us and reminding you of things that we already know. But then it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is in the Bible, isn't it? Yeah. Because we all need to be reminded because we all naturally forget. As I shared, that's why Jesus thought it very necessary to establish the Lord's table and say to His followers, do this in remembrance of Me. Because even His sacrifice on the cross for our salvation over a period of time could maybe diminish in its impact on us if we didn't continually remind ourselves about that thing that He did on the cross for us. And so it's good to be reminded. And that's what Peter is saying here. It's okay to be reminded because let's face it too. Sometimes in our Christian life, it's not that we don't know these things, but we aren't maybe applying them at this point in our Christian life. And so what Peter would say, you know, sometimes it's not about learning more about what the Bible says. A lot of times as Christians, it's about applying what we already know or being reminded about what we already know. I mean, for me, and I'm just talking about for me, so I'm not going to get you guys in on this. But for me, I could spend the rest of my life just focusing on what I already know and don't teach me anymore, God, because I'm having a hard time handling what you're already showing me type of thing. And so that's what Peter's saying. And then he says, indeed, as long as I am in this tabernacle, which is a really neat way to talk about his human body, because the tabernacle, remember, unlike the temple in the Old Testament, the temple was meant to be permanent. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was meant to be pitched, put up, taken down, and go somewhere else. And that's what our body is. It's not the permanent place. We're just setting up a tent here on earth, and then pretty soon we're going to be setting up a tent in heaven. I consider it right to, notice, stir you up by reminding you of these things you already know. Because every once in a while, guess what happens? And the word or the phrase stir you up literally means fan into full flame. 
Peter is looking at our Christian life as like this little campfire here. And what Peter is saying is, hey, guys, you and I can't build a campfire and then just let it go and not nurture it and keep putting wood on there. Eventually, the fire is going to go out. And Peter is saying, one of, the, one of the things that I want to do in your life as a Christian is come alongside and stir you up and add a little bit more wood to that fire so that it, it starts burning brightly again and get going. Because all of us, if we aren't careful, again, will just let the fire go out. And just like a fire, that fire needs constant attention in order to continue to burn bright and, and to, to stay in full flame. The same thing is true again with the Christian life. God has given us, in a sense, all the wood that we need to keep putting on the fire, but it's our responsibility to put the wood on. Or else it's going to go out. Stir us up. Stir us up. We should be stirred when we come to church on Sunday. We should be stirred, hopefully, when we come to the mine on Tuesday night. We should be stirred every time we open up the Bible. We should be stirred when we pray. We should be stirred when we see a beautiful sunset. We should be stirred when we hear a testimony of, of how God's worked in other people's lives. God wants to stir us up. And it's not just about stirring up our emotions and getting us all emotionally charged, again, it's about putting some wood practically on that spiritual fire and keeping our fire for God burning hot and bright. That's what it's about. Since I know, Peter says in verse 14, that my tabernacle will soon be removed because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. And if you go back to the Gospel of John, Jesus revealed how Peter was going to die, and evidently, even though it wasn't recorded there, when Peter was going to die. Peter believed that his time on earth was very, very short. So because of that, notice verse 15. Indeed then, I will also make every effort that after my departure, you have a testimony of these things. And so Peter's goal here is this. I want to write these things down. I want to give you a letter that will transcend my life because... It's not just about me sharing these. It's, it's about you having your own copy of these things so that you can go back to these things periodically in your life and be stirred up. It's not going to do any good if, if I just share these things and then they just drop off into history. And that's why God compiled His Word, the Bible, and gave us the things He did in it so that we can read those things and be stirred and be encouraged and be challenged with those things. And again, I love the fact that Peter looks at his death as simply a departure. For Peter... Death was not a termination, it was a transfer. It was just moving from earth to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in thy presence, the psalmist says, is fullness of joy. So if you have anybody up there that you know in heaven, all I can tell you again, based upon the Bible, I have never been there, is that it's a place where they are just full of joy. Full of joy. And they're just having a great time up there, and they don't want to come back down here. They just want us to join them up there. All right? Now, Peter goes on into verse 16 by saying something else. He says, and folks, what I'm telling you, this isn't a bunch of fairy tales here. He says, we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of His grandeur. And eyewitness testimony should be huge. And that's why the Bible says, look, your faith is not a blind faith. If you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, don't let the world tell you, oh, you're, you just believe in God blindly and there's no facts to back it up. No, the Bible is clear. History is clear. Our faith is always based on historical fact. And one of the reasons why I stand before you tonight is because I have come to believe by investigating carefully the claims of Christ and the historical accuracy of what was going on, that these guys really did, it's right. It's the logical conclusion to come to. Because there were so many eyewitnesses. It wasn't just Peter and the disciples. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose from the dead... 500 people saw Jesus at one time. If you go into a court of law in America and you had 500 people in America who could agree that this is exactly what happened, you'd have no problem. That'd be a slam dunk case, 500 people. God gave witness after witness after witness, and they were all eyewitnesses. Many hundred eyewitnesses to what happened. And so that's what Peter's saying. 
he's, he's saying, look, guys, we actually saw what we're talking about here. In fact, I love that passage, too, in Matthew. I think it's 27. It's a passage that a lot of people don't, don't remember, that, that even before Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says that after the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom, that many believers in Christ were resurrected in Jerusalem around the city and were walking through the streets. Hey, yeah, I was dead last week. Now I'm alive, yeah. And the Bible says there were many of them walking around the streets of Jerusalem, again testifying to the power of God that death is not the end. That there is life after death. And can you imagine all these people in Jerusalem just after killing Christ and hearing about all this thing about, yeah, the resurrection and all this. And now you've got all these other people who have been dead for maybe a day, a week, a month, a year. And they're all walking around Jerusalem testifying to the fact of the power of God. Isn't it amazing that not more people came to believe in God after that? But we're going to get to that tonight. Because it's not about miracles. It's about the Word of God. But it just amazes me how much is out there that God says, your faith is not a leap of faith. As I've said before, I've had people tell me, as a Christian, you live by faith. As a non-Christian, I don't. And my response is that, oh yes, you do live by faith. Because all faith is, is entrusting yourself to someone or something else. And every human being, whether they want to admit it or not, is entrusting themselves to other people or other things at times. And I've used these examples before in the mind, so I apologize for those of you that's heard them like the tenth time. But if you go down to Sky Harbor Airport tonight and you get on a plane, you are entrusting yourself to that airplane company and to that pilot who's flying that plane that they're going to get you safely to your death. That's faith. You go out to a restaurant here in Chandler and you eat out, you're trusting that the cooks behind the scene that you can't see are preparing your food correctly and you won't get sick if you eat it. That's faith. You have faith that when your car breaks down and you take it to a garage, that they're not going to rip you off and get, tell you you need something that you don't. Whatever. You are entrusted. That's faith. So it's not that... Uh, the Christians in the world live by faith and other people in the world don't. We all live by faith. The difference is who's our faith in. And the message of the Bible is, if you put your faith in anyone or anything else but me, you're going to get disappointed. Where God the Father was there. And notice what he says. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. And I thought to myself, if God the Father delights in his son, how much more should we delight in the son of God? How much more should we be delighted in Jesus Christ? Notice verse 18. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's saying, guys, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. Boom. I love the Mount of Transfiguration. It was sort of like when Jesus just gave those disciples just a glimpse of his glory. Just a glimpse, because if Jesus would ever just totally throw out his glory, I mean, it, they'd be vaporized, they'd be gone. So he just gave them a little glimpse. Well, I love the story in the Gospels whenever these, you know, Romans and then Judas is there and they're coming to arrest Jesus. And here's Jesus, you know, he's with his disciples. He has no, you know, Peter wants to take out swords and start cutting people's ears off and stuff. And Jesus is saying, put your, put your swords away, you know. This is, if my kingdom was of this world, I would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world, so we're not fighting. This is not what it's about. But then as they came to arrest him, I love it. The Bible says Jesus sort of transfigured himself. And the Bible says that all those who were coming to arrest him, like, flew backwards. Like, a long way back. It's like... The only way you could have me is because I'm willingly giving myself to you, not because you're overpowering me. He was just trying to put things in perspective. As God does in our life, doesn't he? Now, here's the key. Verse 19. Moreover, okay, he's talked about the power of his own experience. I was an eyewitness. This is why we can continue. It's real, folks. What we're talking about is real. All right? But then he makes a huge statement. He says, Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. And here's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying it's powerful to have eyewitness testimony. That's powerful. But guess what's even more powerful? More powerful is the word of God. That's even more powerful than experience. 
Because Peter is saying to us that experience can fade over time. The impact of our experiences as human beings will fade over time. But the Word of God can constantly be with us and impact us the same way. So he says this. He says, as important as experience is, especially the eyewitness experiences of us, the apostles and all those who saw Christ, guess what? It's even a more powerful witness of what God said in His Word. Well, that's what we have. So what Peter would be saying to us is, for all those in New Testament age who say, boy, if I could just see Jesus, I'd believe. Or if I could just see Jesus, I'd have more faith. And if I could just see Jesus, or Jesus would just do these miracles and these supernatural things in my life, I'd grow more and I'd be more committed and all that. And here's what God would say. You have my word. That's all you need. You have Jesus Christ and you have my word. You don't need anything else. You have the sufficient Scriptures of God that are even as reliable as anything else you could possibly ever come across. That's huge. Because again, what this verse is reminding us of is something that we battle today. And that is the sufficiency of Scripture. To where again, people say, not only is it Jesus Christ plus something else, but it's the Bible plus something else. Oh, it's nice you've got the Bible. Uh, Bibles are nice, but you need the Bible, plus you need, you need this book over here. Or you need to have this experience. Or you need to go here and do this, or whatever. And God's Word would say, Well, you've got the Bible, that's all you need. Now, let me illustrate that tonight, because some of you are sitting there, and I can tell. You're like, no, I'm telling you, I ain't buying it. I'm not buying it. Alright, keep your finger there. And go back to the Gospel of Luke. My favorite Gospel. And I want you to go to Luke chapter 16. Now this is a great passage of Scripture. And this passage, we could go a lot of different ways with this passage. And maybe someday we'll talk about this passage. Because it talks about a lot of different things and all that stuff. But I want to point out the main thrust of this passage is really the sufficiency of Scripture over even miracles and experiences. I want to begin in verse 19 of chapter 16 of Luke. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, this is not the same Lazarus that was raised from the dead. All right? I get asked that question all the time. (laughs) Whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. This man was in pretty bad shape. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus likewise bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us, so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. Now here's the key to the whole passage. Verses 29 And 31, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, they must respond to them. In other words, they got the Old Testament, that's all they need. They don't need somebody to come back from the dead and tell them about this place. They've got the Word of God and that is sufficient. They need to respond to the Word of God. Let's not downplay the power of the Word of God even over the miraculous. Because notice, he goes on to say in verse 30, Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody would come back from the dead and go to them, they will repent. And notice what Abraham says. If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Oh my goodness, we could preach on that. We live in a world today, and we even have a culture today, even within Christianity, that says, 
Lord, if you just do a miracle, if you just give me a sign, if you just do this, if you just do that. And God is saying, I have given you my word. That is all you need. You have Christ. You have my word. If I was to send somebody back from the dead, would it really make a difference? No, because my word is more powerful than that miracle. That's why when Jesus walked the earth and did miracles and raised people from the dead and healed the blind and the lame and all of that, that wasn't how people got to heaven. How do people get to heaven? By hearing the word of God and responding to it. If it was through miracles that people got to heaven and came to a relationship with God, then Jesus would have just went around continuing to do miracle after miracle. But all the miracles that he did couldn't bring about faith in those people because they weren't willing to respond to his word. And that's why even after Jesus rose from the dead and people saw people rise from the dead, did they all come to believe in God? No. Because it doesn't matter what miracles God does. If they will not respond to the powerful word of God, then any miracle that God does will still not shake their heart. Because we sometimes, again, and I'm putting myself in, we downplay the power of this book we hold in our hands every Tuesday night. Somehow we, you know, we say as Christians, yeah, the Bible's a wonderful book and I live by it and I believe it and I believe the promises and all of that. But my friends, do we really understand the power that we hold in our hands? God says, I could send somebody back from the dead, but that's not as powerful as the word I've already given you. And if you won't respond to the word, you won't be convinced even if I rose somebody from the dead. Wow. That speaks so powerfully of the sufficiency of the Bible. And that's why I tell people, it's Jesus and the Bible plus nothing. That, that, that's it. Because any time that we want to add something to that, we're basically saying, Jesus is not sufficient and the Bible's not sufficient. And my Bible tells me just the opposite. Just the things that we've looked at tonight. And so again, my friends, as we talk about growth, don't get caught up in that trap where you, you have come to believe, I need an experience. I need God to do a miracle. I need something. No, God has given us a miracle. The miracle is the Bible. It is His powerful Word that He puts into our hands every day that we can avail ourselves of to grow. And He's given us everything that we need in this book in order to become like Jesus Christ. And so don't, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying don't be against those experiences and, and the cool things that God does and the healings. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is don't look at the Bible somehow as, as deficient in any way. Because God's word totally goes against that. The power is in the word of God. It is in the word of God that is spoken that can truly melt people's hearts and bring them into a relationship with God, and cause us as Christians to grow. So we need to just realize once again the awesome gift that God has given to us right here. It is a gift better than if God would go out to a cemetery tonight and raise somebody from the dead. Because you know what? As powerful as that experience would be, to some it wouldn't affect them at all. It wouldn't matter what God did. And over time, that experience would fade. Ten years from now, we'd still be talking about it, but it wouldn't have the grip on our hearts that this book can have on an everyday basis if we just open it up and get into it. And that's why anything about getting into the Word of God is just so important. And that's what Peter is emphasizing here. He says, guys, if you want to grow, get into the Word. It is reliable. It is powerful. It's more powerful than if God sent somebody back from the dead. That's how powerful it is. All right, back to 2 Timothy. 2 Peter, jeez. You know, I do, I do five studies every week here. Tomorrow I'm doing the women's study, and guess where it's at? 2 Timothy, yeah, yeah. God really helps me to keep those compartmentalized in my head a little bit. Oh, my goodness. I want to stop here in just a moment, but then notice this. I love this. At the end of verse 19, he says, or in the middle, so he says, because of the reliability of the Word of God, you do well if you pay attention to this as, a, as you would a light shining in a murky place. And he's simply, again, comparing what the Bible does all the time, the Bible to a light. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And what, the, what Peter is saying here is this. He's saying, 
keep that light always close to you. It'd be just like, you know, if we went spelunking and we went into a cave, would we put our light 100 feet away and keep going? No. We would have that light right with us at all times, very close to us. That's what Peter's saying. That word, those words pay attention is keep the light of God's word always close at hand. Because we're walking through murky places. We're walking through dusky places and dark places. And we need the light of God's word at all times. So he's saying keep it close to your heart and in your mind until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, above all you do well if you recognize this too. That no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. In other words, again, what he's saying is, guess what? Human beings didn't think this stuff up. This came from God. And that's why it's God's Word. For no prophecy, verse 21, was ever born of human impulse. Because humans can't figure things out. It's God who figures things out. And God gave us His Word. So men were carried along by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. And what he's simply saying is, Again, this just isn't an ordinary book. This is God's book to man. This is God's Word. Can I stand before you tonight and say that this is the Word of God? Yes, I can. This is the Word of God. This is not the Word of man. And that's why things like the mine and churches like Cornerstone where we center around the Bible is so huge because the Bible is what it's all about. It's what God has given us more than anything else to connect ourselves with so that we can just keep on growing and progressing and becoming all that God created us to be. The Bible is always, every year, the number one bestseller. But you know what? Again, you and I can buy the Bibles. We can sit them on our shelves. They can collect dust. But until we open them up, and until we truly believe and embrace what they are saying, and until, until we live on what they're saying, doesn't make any difference. Because again, it's not a head-to-head thing. It's a heart-to-heart. It's got to have gripped my life. And I've got to really get into the Word. I know that's an odd statement coming from me. I'm so not about the Bible, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Comments, questions, anything. Oh, come on. Yes. Yes. And it's talking about the fact that we need the Word of God until the full light of God dawns upon us when Jesus comes back. But the cool thing is, too, and I'm glad you actually noticed the last three, at least in my trans, the last three words of verse in your heart. And again, going back to what I said, the Word has to get into your heart. That's where it has to get. That's why you know, people say, I, I don't understand the difference between this person over here and, this, and they both have the Word and they both say they believe the Word, but maybe the Word is not truly in their heart. It's in their head. You know, we usually tell people, you know, sometimes people can, can miss things by about 15 inches. The difference between your brain and where your heart is on your body. Because we can, again, we can fill our mind with all these facts and all these verses and we can quote it all, but has it really gripped our heart and affected our life? God's not about information. He's about transformation. That's why Romans 12.2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of our mind comes about through our relationship with the Word of God. Yes, Jenny. There is a reference to the bright one. Actually, literally, yeah, it, it, there's some translations that translates that morning star. Uh, in the original language, it's very interesting. It's the word where we get the word phosphorus from. Or phospho, you know, light, whatever. But yeah, there are some translations that do refer to Satan in the Old Testament as bright star as well because he was like the chief of God's creations in the angelic realm. No, that's true. Thank you. I know. I got the lifesaver back on the bottom of my foot. Yeah, yeah. Bart. Good point. We'll answer that now. I'm just teasing. Um, here's, here's a quick answer for that. Uh, 
Here's what we have to be careful of, too. In our society today, there's a lot of paraphrases out there. And I'm not saying they're not good, but let's not put paraphrases on the same level as translations. For instance, a very popular modern paraphrase is the message. How many of you heard of the message that's out there in the that's a paraphrase. In fact, he's Eugene Peterson, no, great guy. But he would say, this is a paraphrase. This is not a translation. All right? You have to differentiate. And then there's a lot of different translations out there. You've got, like, I've got the NET. There's the NIV. There's the New American Standard. There's the King James and all of that. But here's the bottom line. In those translations, they consulted thousands of Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts in order to get to those translations. And though there are some deviation in those translations, all right, they are so minuscule that they make up like less than 1% of the entire Bible. And when they do have a difference, it is usually not in the meaning of the word, it is usually in the word order. For instance, instead of a translation saying, well, we're going to interpret, or we're going to take that verse and translate it, Jesus Christ is Lord. Another translation may have chosen to say, Christ Jesus is Lord. Now, that's a difference. And that would make up 1%. But my friends, does that really make a difference in the meaning? No. Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ Jesus is Lord. So when people, that's like, I've had people over the years say, oh, I've heard there's so many mistakes in the Bible. The first thing I do is take my Bible and say, show me one. And then they usually go, oh, no, 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 no. Because again... They, they're, a lot of times they're just parroting, P-A-R-R-O-T. They're parroting things that they've heard, but they haven't really investigated it. They don't know. So they'll, you know, they'll make those statements. Oh, yeah, there's errors in the Bible. And I say, show me one, you know. I, they can't find one, you know. Or, well, there's contradictions in there. Well, again, show me one, you know. But really, yeah, the, the great thing about the Bible and why we know the Bible is so reliable is because of the preponderance of manuscript evidence. Remember, the Bible has forty to 50,000 manuscripts that back up this text that we have in the Greek and Hebrew. There is no other book, there is no other ancient document that even comes close to that. The writing of Homer has like 600 and that's in second place. So when you go to history class and you hear about, like, Brutus murdering Julius Caesar, well, how do we know Brutus murdered Julius Caesar? Well, there were a couple of historical documents we ran across, and that's in there, so we believe it's history. Oh, okay. And I, I'm not saying he didn't, but I'm just saying, then, how can you question the reliability of the Bible whenever, if you took all those manuscripts thousands upon thousands and compared them, they'd pretty much come out the exact same way except for some very minor differences that have nothing to do with doctrine. It just backs up the reliability of the Bible. What I always tell people is this. If God is powerful enough to give us His Word, He's powerful enough to preserve His Word. He's powerful enough to get His Word to us the way He wants it. I mean, you know, would God say, well, I, I want to give people my message, but I'm not sure it's going to get there. You know? <laughs> God's not going to do that. God's going to be overseeing everything in the process because He wants us to get His message and to get it right. Now, I will say this. This is where study comes in. We've, we do have to study. Because like I pointed out last week, in fact, Mike brought it up in his question about knowledge. In the English translation, in the book of 2 Peter... There's one word for knowledge, and they use that word knowledge all through the book of 2 Peter, but there's a couple different Greek words for knowledge, and they have a different nuance of meaning. And so again, when we're digging, we seem to say, oh, there's a contradiction here. Remember, you might have to dig a little bit deeper to find that non-contradiction and why it doesn't contradict. Oh, because the English word knowledge is all one word, but in the Greek, this means this in this verse, and oh, okay, and that's why the Bible says, you know what, sometimes we do have to study, or we have to avail ourselves of opportunities of people and teachers and whatever who have studied it themselves, because trust me, if you don't really have a heart to study Greek, don't, you know? <laughs> I, I took 15 hours of Greek, and that was 15 too many, but anyway... But, but you've got to avail it, because it does, it's like the word love. You know, again, we use the word love in the English language. One word, love. In the Greek, 
There's four different nuances and words for the word love. Agape, phileo, eris. There's another one that I can't think of. But anyway, love. So again, you've got to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, eros, phileo, agape, but there's another one. Storge, thank you. Yes. So again, digging, studying, coming to Bible studies, whatever, really does help in our understanding of the word. Yes. Oh. No, you, I'm sorry. Where the message is passed around in a circle, and by the time it gets to the other person, you're like, it doesn't mean anything like it did when it started out. Yeah, that's that a good point. Helpful. Yes. Now, I want to set up two weeks from now. Again, we're not going to meet next week, but I want to set up two weeks from now, and then we're going to close in prayer. And if any of you want to come up and hit me after, it's fine. Second Peter chapter 2. Here's why studying the Word and connecting with the Word and getting into the Word and realizing the sufficiency of the Word is so important. Because here's what Peter is saying. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose among the people in my day, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate your midst. They aren't going to be outside the church. They're not going to be outside Christianity. Satan is going to sow them in the church and inside Christianity. And they will bring in destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. Now notice this. Verse 2. And many will follow. That's huge. The Bible predicts that. It's called the great apostasy. Where many, many people are going to turn their backs on the truth. And they're going to follow false teachers. It's going to be a sign of the end times. Folks, it's already here. (laughs) And it's only going to get worse until Jesus comes back. That's why it's so important that you and I know the Word and have spiritual discernment and continue to study the Word and make progress and continue to move forward. Because one of the things that Satan wants to do is if he can't have your soul, If that's already locked up because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the next thing Satan will try to do is to get you to a point where you are ineffective. And how can he do that? By sowing enough error in your doctrine, in your head, that it just messes up your Christian life and just blows up your Christian life. He can't stop you from going to heaven. But he can certainly slow down our progress and cause discouragement and cause us to to worry and fret about things that we wouldn't have to if we truly knew the truth. Remember, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. There's not a lot of people who are truly free today because a lot of times they have bought in to the error of these false teachers who've crept in in our midst. Yes. You know, no, this is more of a doctrinal issue rather than a a cultural issue. And we're going to talk about this in two weeks. So really important stuff. If you know of somebody even in your life who maybe is even wavering and bought into some stuff that's not biblical, this would be a great mind Bible study to bring them to because we're going to touch on some really cool stuff in Second Peter that talk about this.